We read John's Gospel on Christmas Day, usually, and then the first Sunday of Christmas. And as you can tell, this birth narrative is far different than what we hear in Luke and Matthew. Mark doesn't even have a birth narrative. Mark's story starts with the baptism of Jesus in the wilderness. Luke and Matthew have the birth narratives that we have physical depictions of, the stories of the shepherds and of the wise men, the stories of those that witnessed and knew of who Jesus was, Zechariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist, and then Mary and Joseph, their stories too. Matthew has the lineage that leads to Jesus, understanding that he's of the line of David. And so it's in Matthew that you'll read, begat, 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 many generations, all the way back to King David. But John talks about the word being made flesh. He talks in a way that is hard to keep up with. It's not narrative in the sense that we have a depiction that we can set on a stair or on a windowsill. He talks about the beginning of all time and about God coming among us incarnate in the word. John's gospel stands starkly different than any of the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are known as the synoptic gospels. And they were all written about the same time, Mark first and then Matthew and Luke a little later. John, though, was written about 30 years later, around 80 of the common era, so probably 50 years or so after Jesus' death and resurrection. And John is just a different book than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's in John's Gospel that we hear the story of Nicodemus, who goes to Jesus in the night to understand who he is. And that story is only in John's Gospel. It's in John's Gospel that we learn about the Samaritan woman at the well, from whom um, she hears Jesus tell her whole story. And as you might remember, she goes to the town and says, come and meet this man, I think he's the Messiah. He told me everything I've ever done. And they go with her, and they then believe, first through her witness, but then through their experience of Jesus at the well. That story is only in John's Gospel. John 9 tells of a man who's born blind, who is healed. It's a very engrossing and engaging story. And that one is only in John's Gospel. In John 11, where Jesus um, comes after Lazarus has died and then is raised again, that story is only in John's Gospel. The washing of the disciples' feet, only in John's Gospel. The commandment to love one another, only in John's Gospel. And in the final days of our Holy Week remembrances, we read exclusively from John's Gospel. It stands alone. Scholars have long debated who exactly is this beloved disciple, given credit for the writing of this gospel. Beloved disciple only shows up in John's gospel. Surprise there, right? There's no mention of anyone other than the twelve in Matthew and in Luke. And so why is it that the twelve are mentioned in John's gospel But then there's this other one, too, the beloved disciple. That has been a conversation that people who have engaged scripture have debated for a long time. Some people think it's metaphorical and that we're to put ourselves in the place of that particular person. Others have argued that it's a woman, and so she doesn't make the cut for Matthew 
and Luke to list her. There's such uncertainty about it that um, conversation continues about who is this beloved disciple. Well, I'm of the belief that he was a young man between the ages of 13 and 16. And so he was only counted sometimes. You see, throughout all of history, people have been growing up from child to adult. And all of time shows the same biological evolution of humans. So it was customary in the time of Jesus for a young man between the ages of 13 and 16 to choose a rabbi with whom he would study to sit at his feet and to hear how he interprets and, pro- and interprets the law and the prophets and how he talks about it and, and the participation in engaging scripture in that way. I've spent a good deal of time considering how the beloved disciple as a young person in these th- three years or so, between 13 and 16 years old, I want to share with you a couple of things that have encouraged me, partly because the church has encouraged me, the universal church made known through a few people, in this discovery, in this contemplation. One is the way that John's gospel ends. Having thought about the beginning, let's consider how it ends. In John's gospel, Jesus appears to the disciples after his resurrection. He's on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and the fishermen, the Peter and the disciples have gone fishing, kind of not knowing what else to do with themselves now that Jesus is no longer around. And there's a figure on the shore, and the beloved disciple and Peter are out in the boat, and the beloved disciple said, it's the Lord. And as you probably remember, Peter takes off his clothes and jumps into the water to swim to shore. And when he gets there, they have a, a meal Evidence of the risen Lord, fish cooked on an open fire. And following that meal, Jesus engages Peter, giving him the chance to speak his love to Jesus after he's denied him three times. Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? And Peter answers, you know that I love you. Jesus asks him two more times, And it's after that that then Peter begins to ask, what's going to happen next? Here on the seashore, Peter says to Jesus, when are you going to come again and establish your kingdom? Will it be soon, during my lifetime? And Jesus says, that's not for me to say. So I want to tell you, read to you from John's gospel, the very last section here. It's just after this has happened. So Peter turns around and seeing the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, he says to Jesus, Lord, what about him? Will he be here when you come again? Jesus replies, if I want him to remain until I come, what difference does that make to you? You must follow me. Therefore, the word spread among the brothers and sisters that this disciple wouldn't die. However, Jesus didn't say he wouldn't die, but only if you want him to remain until I come, what difference does that make to you? This is the disciple who testifies concerning these things and who wrote them down. We know his testimony is true. 
Jesus did many other things as well. If all of them were recorded, I imagine the world itself wouldn't have enough room for the scrolls that would be written. So here at the end of John's Gospel, we have a hint that it was the beloved disciple who wrote down all of the stories contained in the Gospel of John. Church history does say that the beloved disciple, or the author of John's Gospel, was young. I brought with me the icon of the beloved disciple, and I'll set it in the back there during the piece so you can look at it, and you see his youthfulness. If you are to see the Gospel writers depicted in art, whether in painting or in sculpture, you'll see that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have beards, but John doesn't. I'm struck by the testimony of this disciple and the profound meaning for us of his stories, how they have changed us. The story of Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman and the man born blind and the raising of Lazarus, the foot washing and Jesus' commandment to love one another, Those stories have changed us. All of the passages that we read for um, a funeral office are from John's Gospel. The Good Shepherd, the creation of a place for you, and I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and I will come and take you unto myself. Again, the raising of Lazarus. Those are all from John's Gospel. We are changed by his testimony. His experience of Jesus as he has shared it with us through the written word, and it has been passed down from generation to generation, has actually changed our lives. And that's the point of incarnation. God came among us in Jesus, dwelled among us, and revealed to us in that very specific place and time the amazing, abundant, immense love of God. And lives were changed then, And those lives, through the proclamation of what happened to them with Jesus, have changed other lives, which have changed other lives, which have changed other lives, all the way up to us. We have become followers of Jesus not because we liked the rules, not because there were particular promises made to us, we just all want to get into heaven. No, we've become followers of Jesus because someone has testified to us about how Jesus has changed their life. And so in their testimony, the word becomes incarnate. In this Christmas season, we're invited to consider our testimony, how it is that we tell of how Jesus has changed our life. It may sound pedestrian, overly simplistic, and yet it's not. It's simplicity does not make it less valuable. It makes it more accessible. And so, as the followers of Jesus, we're encouraged to consider how has the word become incarnate in us? And through the telling of that, how might God become known to others? Amen.